Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist. To focus on the emotional connection more than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Welcome everyone to the Feelin' Film Podcast Year in Review episode. I'm Aaron, and with me, as always, is my best friend and partner in crime, Patch. Hey, everyone. In this special mini-sode, we are going to be having a conversation about our year in movies from 2018. We are extremely excited about this because last year, the last two years actually running, we've had incredible discussions uh, when we did this episode. And instead of giving you just a list of our top 10 films, which you can find on feelinfilm.com, mine is already available as of the release of this episode. Patrick's will be up there by New Year's Day at the latest, so you yep. can find it there. But instead of doing that, we are going to talk about some of our favorite performances, our highs and our lows, even our favorite podcast episodes. We really think that you're going to enjoy this one as much as that we are going to, because we get to surprise each other. And that's part of the fun, Patrick. Patrick just told me right before we went live with this recording, he was asking me a question. And I said, well, what movie are you referencing? What, so I can help you answer that question. And he didn't want to tell me what it was because he wanted it to be a surprise. And that's a lot of fun for us because usually we kind of have an idea of what each other is going to talk about going into this. Um, so this is great. Patrick, let's kick it off like we did last year, shall we? Um, we will start by talking about our favorite first-time viewings of films that were not released in 2018. Uh, this is a really great segment because it's pretty wide open, and this is the one, more than anything probably, where we have no idea what each other is going to pick. So uh, would you do the honor and share one of yours to start us off? Yeah, so I'm going to... We're not ranking these. These are just three in general, right? We are not ranking anything other okay. than maybe most anticipated film of 2019. We can put those in order if you want, but otherwise, no. Okay. So the first one I want to mention is The Wolf Children. This is an anime feature that came out, I believe, about five or ten years ago. And this is what kicked off my summer of anime, which I'm going to tell you guys, it was an endless summer for me in terms of finishing the, the anime movies that I wanted to actually watch. Um, I eventually did finish them as of last week, so it was a long summer for me to actually get through them. And it's not because they got bad. It's just because I ran out of time and I started a new position at work. And so a lot of my time just got kind of sucked up with obviously the podcast as a whole and then other family and work related stuff. But the Wolf Children was really kind of part of what kicked this idea off for me in terms of checking out anime, a genre that I am not generally a fan of. Uh, this combined with your name that we covered last year was an opportunity for me to see what I liked and what I didn't like. And it's been really great to kind of have a better understanding of what is it about anime that I'm really drawn to. I have a better understanding of what I really do kind of gravitate towards and what is just completely a turnoff for me. But The Wolf Children is one of those movies that plays in both the reality and fantasy of the world of anime, which seems to be a common trait depending on the director, the writers, obviously. And 
when I watch it, there is this level of delicacy and sense of real drama that takes place in a movie that's centered around these two kids that are part wolf. I know, it's a bizarre premise. But once you get through that premise, and particularly the first third of the movie, and you start watching their journey as they grow up, facing the dilemma of being two things at once, it speaks to the idea of what it means to not be one thing or the other, to kind of be in the middle ground um, in terms of kind of the landscape that we that we live in right now when it comes to racial reconciliation. There's this idea of those that those kids that are born from a uh, a a mixed set of parents, you know, are they this or are they that? And so this kind of explores that in a way that's kind of fun, but also connective emotionally. And when I when I saw it, I remember thinking, I want to see more like this. And fortunately, my summer of anime got me some exposure to that. There are other movies that are in that same vein, but there are also other movies that were in my favorites that didn't make the cut. Some honorable mentions being Perfect Blue, Paprika, Millennium Actress, all from the same director, by the way, Satoshi Kon, who, this is a spoiler alert from my last uh, entry in my my blog, he is probably becoming one of my favorite directors. I'm, I'm sad that he's no longer with us. He passed away a, a while back, but those three movies in particular were standouts for me in my discussion or my, in my journey through this anime adventure. But the wolf children was for me, probably the the movie that kicked it off for me. Well, that's really cool. Um, I love it because our taste is not lining up the way I would expect it to. And we got into this via me kind of pushing you on, I got it. I got pushed into anime. And so then I started pushing you kind of into anime um, and we both really enjoyed Shinkai, and of course, we both really enjoy um, The Master, um, of course. But now I see our paths diverging a little, and it's, for me, Wolf Children's okay. It's definitely not a favorite of mine. Um, his other films, Summer Wars, um, The Boy and the Beast, those are not ones that I really cared too much for either. Um, I like them all in some capacity. It's Mamoru Hosado, or Hosada. And uh, the one that I love the most of his is actually completely different than those. And it's called The Girl Who Leapt Through Time. That was yeah. like, yeah. that was my favorite of his. Um, but what I find interesting is he has a new film out that's this year. that um, was probably the leading anime film contender when it comes to animation. It's called Mirai. And it has a lot of the same themes that Wolf Children explores, um, if you will. So I'm really curious what you think about it once you get a chance to see it. I think now hearing you say all of this, I think you actually might like it. Well, and the thing is, is I like Summer Wars, and I, I really like The Girl Who Leapt Through Time. So when I, if I were to rank all of these in terms of my directors, I mean, Shinkai is slowly kind of making his way down the list. Because look, totally he's, fine. I mean, and, and he's look—he's the Thomas Kincaid of anime. There's nobody that's going to compete with his visuals. But some of his stories are just so out there that man, I—I just—I can't grasp them. And I get that they have to be watched multiple times to really be enjoyed. But man, sometimes it's nice just to have a straightforward tale. 
I literally would say the exact same words that you just said about Satoshi Kon. Okay. I I don't like any of his films, Completely. and that's what that's yeah. part of what I was being shocked about is Millennium Actress. Nope, no thanks. Perfect Blue, negative. Paprika, n- not nah, watch it twice. <laughs> still don't care. Don't get it. Like none of those I like. So when you're telling me that's your favorite group, I was like, what is going on here? Like something's crazy. But I I love it. I love that you enjoyed your summer of anime. I love that you did it in the first place. Um, it was a really cool choice for a challenge for the year and. Um, before I go into mine, first one, just speak on that about challenges. Listeners, uh, for those of you that are not part of the Fill in Film Facebook group, you may not know this, but a group of uh, listeners and community members kind of all made pledges at the beginning of the year to go through a specific director's work or an actor's work or do some, some people were challenging themselves to watch, you know, a film from every year they were born or something from their backlog, whatever the case may be, it was a specific challenge and goal so that they could take 12 months and try to knock it out. And Patrick was going to do it all over the summer. Didn't quite happen, but that was fine. He still got it done in the calendar year. So he succeeded. I actually started my challenge off was going to be to watch all of Paul Thomas Anderson's films. I don't know if you remember that. Um, I was really flying high on phantom thread at the time. I got about, two short films and his first feature into his filmography. I ended up stopping right before Boogie Nights and I fell in love with Isle of Dogs. And what I did is instead I watched another Anderson's entire filmography. And in the course of like a couple months, I blew through Wes Anderson's entire uh, movie lineup. And so that was my challenge. And I ended up doing that and it was really cool. And it's just such an informative thing. You know, it's kind of like what we do with director month trying to go through in order or, you know, just you, you learn so much more when you watch a person's movies back to back like that. So we highly encourage it, whatever the case may be, whatever you want to do, you know, come be a part of the feeling film Facebook group and you can, you know, have some accountability for your challenge too, if you'd like that. For me, Patrick, uh, my first one that I wanted to talk about briefly is um, actually something I'm, I've mentioned. I think all of these on the podcast at one point or another, probably, but uh, is basketball a love story? And this is a staggering amount of history in a documentary that came out this year. It was uh, published on ESPN+. Plus. Don't even get me started on the way that they're doing their new model. I, I mean, it's not that bad, but it's confusing. Regardless, if you are an ESPN Insider subscriber or various other platforms, you can get to this on their website – um, and it also has been airing. You can set your record, uh, you know, device to record it is what I did, but it's a 20 hour long documentary <laughs> and on their website, it's actually broken up into segments. So there's like 15 minute segments, five minute segments. So you can watch it in really small pieces, but for the most part, it starts off at the very beginning of, of history with uh, basketball being invented and it takes interviews and archival footage like I've never seen before. And it marries them together in just this superb way. Um, another reviewer actually said this. I wish I could take credit for it, but said that the director, Dan Cloris, has made a Ken Burns-style history of the game of basketball here. And that is exactly how I felt about it. It is truly glorious if you are at all a fan of the game, whether it's college or the NBA. I happen to be a very big fan of both. And... It was amazing. I learned so much. I mean, I've even read Bill Simmons' book of basketball, and basketball fans will know that this thing is like 
giant, it's like an encyclopedia. I mean, it's massive. It's one of the most amazing sports books I've ever read. This taught me stuff on top of that. Um, it, it, it's amazing. It really, really is. And I gained a lot of respect for players that, you know, I knew by name, especially like, you know, older players. Like, oh, everybody knows who Walt Frazier is. You just know him by name because you didn't live in their eras. But when I got to see these players like Oscar Robinson, I got to actually see footage of him. I got to see him in college and learn, you know, what he went through and some of these players that dealt with segregation and all kinds of experiences that they had in growing to become what I know of them as just a footnote with some statistics, you know, on the back of a basketball card. So I thought it was amazing. I love the title, Basketball, a Love Story, because it truly feels like someone is writing a love letter to the sport. Uh, new pl- newer players and coaches are, are interspersed with like part of the interviews throughout. It's, it's really, really fantastic. And if I was going to rank it along with the other documentaries I saw this year, it would be right there in probably the top three uh, easily because it's that incredible of an achievement. Uh, so if you're a fan of basketball, seek it out. Basketball, a love story. Find a way to get a copy of it or download pieces of it or just watch it in spurts on the web. Whatever you got to do, it's it's great. Fantastic, man. And I, I've noticed that this year has been the year that you've grown in your love for documentaries, at least with with this slate of documentaries that's come out this year. But I, I've, I've seen you dive into more um, some older ones as well, including that one. Yeah, I have. I have. And it's been really good. I like the genre a lot. It's good to learn stuff. And my number two or my second movie that uh, was not from 2018 was part of a new learning experience for me. And this uh, this may come to have some other kind of uh, consequences or repercussions later on in the show. But it's this uh, this idea of how much horror can we throw at Patch without him, you know, wetting himself? And I found that this January, when we went through our director month, that there was a movie that stood above and beyond other movies that I'd seen by this director. And that was The Shining by Mr. Stanley Kubrick. I didn't know what to think going into this movie. I was like, okay, this is kind of a horror, but thriller suspense. And I usually need a pep talk before going into movies that are, deemed as horror unless it's a movie like life where your your co-host decides to leave you in the dark and tell you it's not a horror or doesn't tell you what it is so <laughs> that's not true that's <laughs> listen to the episode he can you confess on the episode of life that you did not you intentionally did not tell me it was a horror movie i am convinced now by the way that life is an unintentional venom prequel okay well i could maybe i could buy that but for right now it's a horror movie uh, one that I didn't get told with. But I look at The Shining, and being a first-time watch for me was just pretty phenomenal. Going through Stanley Kubrick Month was really educational. I had not seen two of them, uh, Full Metal Jacket being the other one, and I'd seen the the other two that we covered. And The Shining stood out to me because of the way in which a lot of what Stanley Kubrick is famous for comes to be in that movie, the way he uses camera angles, the way he creates these long tracking shots and the way in which he sets up tension without creating a lot of your 
standard jump scares or screams or things like that. You have just eerie pictures on walls and shots of twin girls that are just looking at you really scarily or whatever that thing was in, <laughs> in that hotel room. 268, is that the right one? I don't remember which, which hotel room number it was. But anyway, I'm watching The Shining and you you take this the story that is equally about the creepiness of a hotel as much as it is about this character Jack and his journey into what he eventually becomes and i don't want to spoil anything for those who haven't seen it but if anything the shining has shown me that that's the kind of horror that i can enjoy horror that doesn't give me the cheap, hey, scare you to death, but kind of gives you that creep factor that sits with you, but doesn't haunt my dreams necessarily. And it's not necessarily specifically calling back to anything like overly like demonic or anything like that. Those are movies that I kind of, I don't, I don't, I stay away from. So watching The Shining was just as much a part of an educational experience as Director Month was for us in, or for me in January but it's one that I want to rewatch, if for no other reason than just to kind of look at the nuances that exist in it as a movie. It's it's a great movie. It's a great film. I think it's, in a lot of ways, flawless. I mean, you could nitpick, but there's so much about it that I could have multiple conversations about with, with anybody who'd want to talk. I love it. I'm really excited by by hearing that. Um, I, I was I was worried. I'm not going to lie. I was worried going through that month that that was the one that was going to be a problem because <laughs> I just didn't know how you're going to take it. But it makes me happy because I think it's probably my favorite style of horror as well. And that means we get to cover stuff like that occasionally. Yeah. And and it's great to cover on the show because it's not blood and guts, which are hard to discuss. It's themes and it's psychological things to unpack. Right. And explore. Um, and that's a lot of, you know, good material for us. Well, my number two is, uh, something that came out of nowhere. And I recently put this down as my most, my number one, you know, shocking or surprising discovery of the year on an IndieWire critic survey article. And I have to give credit to a contributor of ours, Jacob Neff, for discovering this. I, for some reason, thought that I had seen all of Denis Villeneuve's films, being a big, big, huge fan of the director. You know, I, thought they, I thought that Incendies was his first. Um, it's a foreign film. But he actually has a couple before that, one of which is called Polytechnique. And it is a black and white picture. And what it is, is it's a story about a school shooting. Okay, and I didn't know really anything about it going into it. I just said, oh, that's like a, like a pretty black and white movie by Denis Villeneuve. Like, I know what kind of movies Denis Villeneuve makes, so I'll pop that in. Mm-mm. Mm, no, mm, was not prepared. This covers a December 6th, 1989 school shooting in Montreal where a gunman killed 14 young women in an engineering school generally believed because he felt that they were feminists um whether they agreed and and you know owned up to being feminists or not many of them said they weren't and 
he still murdered them anyway. The the thing that stood out about this film to me and has stuck him with me all year long is the way that it's shot. It's unlike any school shooting movie or depiction that I've ever seen. I'll say it like this. There's a moment in this film where the shooter is explaining his motive to a group of women in the school that he's holding at gunpoint. And one of them, um, being very independent, dares him, dares, she dares to talk back and she disagrees with him and tells him, no, that we're not feminists. We don't believe these things or we don't act this way in a, in a plea to stay, you know, they're coming execution essentially. And in a flash, she is unexpectedly and terrifyingly cut off mid sentence. You just hear gunshots go off so loud. And I'm talking like, feel them loud in your bones, like first man type sound editing or Dunkirk and nothing remains, but like chaos and death and the shooter who stands there cold and soulless, like he's a terminator. Like that's the only word that I could come to. I had to stop the film at that moment. And I literally almost threw up on the spot. Um, I was, I was so shaken by it. It was completely unforgettable to me. And I really had to compose myself before moving on. And it's because of this completely visceral way that Villeneuve tells this tragic, true story, uh, that it has this emotional impact on me. He frames it brilliantly between a suicide letter at the beginning that is composed by the shooter explaining his reasoning. And then at the ending, a letter to his parents, the shooter's parents from the lone survivor of the shooting, one of the the survivors rather. And it's, there's really no political message in this movie that I could find. It, It just feels like ultimately a call for hope and strength and I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you a quote from the movie because this is, this is probably one of the top two or three lines of dialogue from any movie I watched this year. In the end, she's writing and she's, you know, writing this letter to his parents. And she says, if I have a boy, I'll teach him how to love. If I tell, have a girl, I'll tell her the world is hers. And that's what I'm talking about with this hope and strength message, um, to kind of combat this awful, act that this man uh, perpetuated just because these women were women who wanted to be able to be accepted for who they are. Um, it, it is, it is an incredible thing, work of art, just the, the cinematography, the way it's made, it's so powerful and it's unlike anything Denis Villeneuve has ever done otherwise. So yeah. I highly recommend it, but I recommend it with that caveat that you know now what you're getting into, unlike me, so you can make an informed decision about when you watch it, how you watch it, um, be prepared. But I do think that it is it is pretty vital, in my opinion, as far as a piece of cinematic history, honestly. Yeah, and I was going to ask if it was consistent with other Denis Villeneuve stuff, and I'm kind of glad that it's not, because it kind of speaks to his diversity in terms of what he puts on film in terms of the stories that he tells. So... And I like the fact that you put that caveat out there because there are movies that you need to be able to be in the right mindset to, I don't want to say enjoy, but to absorb, to to really fully get the effect of it. And 
there have been a handful of them this year from from this year's um, movie library that that you have that kind of mentality where you're like, okay, sit down, put your phone away, and watch the movie. Which I would say that for any movie, by the way, <laughs> to put your phone down and watch the movie because that's really why you're sitting there doing that. You wouldn't do it in a theater. Why would you do it on the couch? But that's another argument altogether. <laughs> All right. Well, my third is a movie that came out in 2012, and it's by a pair of directors, uh, Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead, and it's called Resolution. We've talked about this on the show, and we've actually talked about this with the two directors. We had a chance to interview them, I guess, earlier this year, and it was a it was a pretty great experience, at least for me. I, I, I'm assuming it was for you as well, Aaron. And, um, you know, so watching it, uh, getting a chance to see their their debut film um, after talking to them was was pretty eye opening. We had actually talked a little bit about, I guess, it was the third film that they had directed called The Endless. And I remember hearing a little bit about Resolution um, before talking to them and then talking a bit about Resolution um, after the interview. And this movie, it's it's kind of a short film. Not It's not a short film, but it's, it's, an, it's definitely independent. It centers around these two guys. Uh, they're best friends. And it's about a guy who basically kidnaps his best friend who is a junkie and he brings him to this like isolated cabin in the, the boonies to force him to go through this kind of detox. And a lot like the, uh, like Benson and Moorhead's other two movies, there is an interesting turn that takes place dramatically and narratively in this movie. And a similar turn can be said to take place in The Endless. And the thing that I gravitated towards in this more than anything else was the way in which that these guys were able to write what felt like honest dialogue. Like I felt like I was sitting in this rundown cabin with these two individuals who one was genuinely trying to heal his best friend and watching them interact with each other, watching them struggle with their ideologies. Um, it wasn't like I was in the head of the addict, but having similar experiences with, with family and friends who have had addiction or who deal with addiction, I'm watching the hard conversations take place and I'm watching these two individuals battle back and forth at trying to keep their own worldviews intact. And then you quantify that by having this sort of wrench get thrown into the narrative that completely kind of alters the vantage point. It gets really, really interesting. There is a sci-fi element that I didn't see coming, and that's all I'm going to say about it because I don't want to give away too much. But it is a great introduction into their filmography. The Endless, I think, is a is a great kind of follow up in terms of getting their their style sort of solidified. It kind of plays in in their narrative world a little bit more, but it also feels a little bit more uh, a little bit more mature. It feels a little bit more produced. 
even though it's still an independent film. But I would encourage you guys to watch Resolution and then um, and then watch The Endless. Those are the two two favorites of mine of their three. Nice. Well, I love that. That makes me very happy because, yes, Aaron did enjoy that episode very, very much. Aaron enjoys it anytime we get to talk to people that yes. are in the movie making industry. Um, but it's particularly sci-fi stuff. That was really, really cool to get to have some like insider knowledge about that universe that is barely a universe, which is really even cooler that it's just barely a universe, but it really is one. Um, so great pick there. For my number three, um, I'm going to go with uh, another, like this is the movie that I have not been able to place all year long because it's not a movie <laughs> and it's not a documentary. So I haven't been able to have it on any of my lists and it's been messing everything up. Because it's five stars on Letterboxd. And every time I go to count my Letterboxd five-star ratings for the year, it's there in the middle. And I'm like, but no, I don't want to count that one because that one doesn't count. Like, that doesn't go against my, you know, stat. Like, I can't. Anyway, I digress. On Netflix this year, earlier in the year, this live concert came out. And it's called Hans Zimmer, Live in Prague. And if you've been listening to the show all year long, you may have heard me talk about this once before. But this is incredible. Now, Zimmer is easily, you know, top three composer for me. I don't know what my composer rankings are. He is a magician, in my opinion, and a legend for good reason. His film scores evoke emotion in ways that resonate very deeply with myself, um, Patrick, and many people. And this was an awesome live performance, my friend. I did, did you ever get a chance to watch it? I did not. Okay, so you need to put it on your to-do list at some point as well. It is about an hour and a half long, maybe two hours-ish, but the thing is, it's really cool because you can just kind of put it on the background. You don't have to watch it. You can just listen to it. So it's great for when you're writing up articles, like top 10 of the year type articles, things like that, um, or whatever else you may be doing, just normal work, you can put it on. That's what I've done. I've watched it many times this year since the first time, and usually it's when I'm cleaning house or something like that. I'll just turn it on instead of Spotify. It's really cool. Um, he goes through, you know, many different, uh, versions of, of his films or many, he uses, you know, to, plays the themes from many of his films. He brings in, uh, guest appearances from other musicians. He tells a couple of really fun stories. There's really touching tribute related to the Dark Knight shooting in Aurora in the theater and a song that was specifically written about that uh, and composed for that in order to raise money at the time. So that's in there as well. Uh, it's it's incredible. It's infinitely rewatchable, or I guess I should say re-listenable, if that's a word. And if you have any interest at all in Hans Zimmer's music, you owe it to yourself on Netflix. Hans Zimmer, live in Prague. I have not been a big concert goer in my lifetime, Patrick, but it may be 100% confident that if Hans Zimmer is ever in Seattle, like, I have to go see him live. Like, this, this would be one of the few live performances that I feel is completely worthy of whatever the cost would be to make sure I experienced it. It was that cool to me uh, seeing this filmed like this. And I'm just really glad it exists. Fantastic. Yeah. It, if not for the sake of being like not having time, I've not ignored the, the, the performance or the concert. I just, I will make it a point while I'm putting up my top 10 to have that on the background. 
You like that little uh, nudge that yeah. I give you there? God, I almost hit my microphone. You kind of pushed me a little bit. Sorry. Uh, do you have any honorable mentions? I don't have a lot to say, but I do have one. Um, I had uh, Life is Beautiful. I had The Departed, and I had Sunshine. Those made my honorable mentions. Those were... Sunshine was your first viewing? Yeah. Oh, wow. There's another horror that kind of fits in that Shining type of style for the... Well, it goes a little crazy at the end, but... (laughs) But so does Jack. That's very true. Wait. Ah, spoiler. Yeah, don't watch Ready Player One if you... Anyway. Um, (laughs) Spoiler again! Okay. Um, My honorable mention that I just wanted to quickly note it was really close to being on my list was I watched through for first time ever Avatar The Last Airbender, the animated series, Nickelodeon cartoon. And wow, I was blown away. Anybody that was listening to the podcast at that time or following me on social media knew because I think I went through the whole thing in about two to three weeks. I was just watching episode after episode after episode, which is as most people understand, very, very rare for me when it comes to getting through a TV series. That just doesn't happen. Like, I start 10 TV series for every one that I finish. And uh, this one I finished, and I loved. And I can't wait to go through the follow-up series, Legend of Korra, at some point, hopefully this year, early this year, before the live-action Avatar series on Netflix drops. That's what I'm kind of was getting myself prepped for. But I... Basically, I just want to echo all of the high praise that you've ever heard about this being one of the best animated series of all time. I echo that all. Uh, it was a phenomenal experience with amazing, amazing characters that I really connected with. Uh, and I deeply, deeply loved every single episode of this show, and I can't wait to watch it again. It will definitely be something I revisit frequently throughout my life. I'll make time for that, kind of like I do for Firefly and very other select tv shows that i actually rewatch. so avatar last airbender is indeed amazing okay one segment down (laughs) moving on next up we're gonna talk favorite performances and i think some of these will get like a little bit shorter probably but we'll see uh as far as how much we have to say for favorite performances we typically have done four each um I think we aim for two male, two female to keep it mixed up, but we're not tied to that if someone really blows us away. And with that said, Patrick, what you got for number one? Are we going male or female first? Um, I have two male, mine are in an order on my notes of male, male, female, female. Okay, we'll do that. Let's do that. All right. So first up is uh, Rem Malik for Bohemian Rhapsody. I think when we were talking last year, I don't know if I mentioned looking forward to Bohemian Rhapsody this year, but I think that I mentioned that the still of him as Freddie Mercury that was floating around the internet had me on board from day one. There's something about being able to transform yourself into a particular character, and there are a few people that can pull this off. I think that in contrast, the biopic on Fred Rogers that in concept I'm looking forward to I'm a little put off by the fact that Tom Hanks is playing him because I can't see Fred Rogers. I see Tom Hanks with Fred Rogers' sweater vest on. And that's not to take away from Tom Hanks and his you know, potential performance. I think he's going to be amazing because Tom Hanks usually is. But there's something about when you put on the role of an actual person, like in real life. Christian Bale comes to mind as Dick Cheney. Haven't seen Vice yet. It's going to get watched. 
but just watching him alone and the transformation that takes place, there's that to me is at least a third of your performance. But Remy Malik does more than that. He takes on the whole mannerisms, the actual like not necessarily vocal performance, but the performance of the performer in terms of Freddie Mercury. Watching him on stage, and particularly during the Live Aid concert, and seeing the way he struts, seeing the way in which he brings the crowd in and almost controls them, I forgot that I was watching him. I saw Freddie Mercury. I thought that I was watching the Live Aid concert. And that takes an incredible performance to to do that to me, to make me forget that there's an actor per, you know, performing this. So watching him do that and watching him speak through that false set of teeth <laughs> and even going so far as to lick his, lick his lips like Freddie Mercury would do, it's those small things that to me make that performance memorable. Even if the rest of the movie isn't fantastic, he definitely carries it, and not because the movie's bad, but I think just like Freddie Mercury was equally what Queen was as much as the band was, I think Rami Malek, his performance is the same way in terms of him related to the other cast members around them. They were all great, but his performance elevated that movie for me. That is a very good and non-surprising choice. Um, <laughs> I would have bet money that he would be on your list. Um, that's the thing with some of these, you know, these are not like meant to be surprises necessarily. Um, for long-time listeners, you will have heard us talk about some of these yeah. before, but now you're hearing like in context of these are really the ones that stood out the most over the course of the entire year. I'm not going to try to be kitschy. I'm not going to be kitschy. Yeah, I'm, I'm not either. Um, for me, my favorite performance of the year from an actor, or one of my two, I guess, um, I I'm leaving off certain people. So I'm leaving off Ethan Hawke, for example. Um, and these are, these are two that really stood out to me because I was unexpected. Wait, that's not the way to say that. Because they were unexpected. Um, I expect Ethan Hawke to give a good performance as one of my favorite actors of all time. I would be disappointed if he was anything less than stellar. But these two actors came out of nowhere and really blew me away. And the first one of those is Raphael Casal. Didn't even know who this dude was, all right? And that's in the movie Blind Spotting. This is my second favorite movie of the year. Very close, very, very, very close to being my favorite movie of the year. Um, it's a film that completely and utterly, literally blew me away. When I first saw it, I had no expectations going into it, didn't have any idea what it was about. The only thing I knew was that it was starring David Diggs, who is, uh, he plays, oh gosh, why am I blanking now? Uh, Lafayette in Hamilton, the, the original version and one of my favorite characters. So that's, that's how I knew him. But he and Rafael Casal are best friends who grew up in Oakland and had been working on this screenplay for years and years prior to David getting hooked up with uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda and then going on his lengthy Broadway tour doing Hamilton. So this got put on hold. Well, when they got the time, they came together and they made this movie Blindspotting. And 
David is incredible as well. One of the best male performances of the year, in my opinion. But what puts this movie into the special territory for me is Rafael Casal. Now, in real life, Rafael Casal is a very educated, well-spoken, um, he's a uh, spoken word poet. So he does a lot of, of that kind of rapping. It's like David Diggs, only without music, essentially. And in this movie, he plays, I don't know how to say it, and I don't know how to like describe his character, but he's, he's grown up in Oakland with David Diggs, and he wears gold teeth, so he's trying to fit in with a culture that he's not necessarily part of. Um, he's a white guy who's trying to fit in in a black world, essentially in this rundown part of Oakland. And his character is the funniest one I saw all year long. Um, the way in which he manages his comedic timing with his facial expressions is just incredible. I mean, he's this is his first-time actor. He's ever doing this. And you can tell that there is a confidence, I think, that comes from having written the screenplay and been literally intimately familiar with this material for years and years and years because it's coming from his own heart, this character of Miles that he plays. He is the key to this whole thing, like driving um, much of the narrative forward because David's character is uh, very reserved. Um, he's dealing with stuff on more of a PTSD level. But this performance is just, it, it's staggering to me. Um, he goes through a huge emotional range, um, learns a lot, his character does, emotionally speaking, and it just really, really stuck out to me. And I think those who have seen Blind Spotting will be nodding their heads in agreement and completely understand what I mean. Those who have not will be like, I don't know what you're talking about, but I guess I just use that as ammo to tell you, go see this movie. Um, because here's another reason, beyond me telling you that it is darn near my favorite film of the year, Part of it is because this guy is incredible in it. And when you see his character in this movie, you will thank me and you'll go, oh, I understand now why Aaron thought this was such an incredible performance because he's very, very memorable. The way that he delivers his comedy um, and the situations that he gets himself into. Yeah, it's blind spotting is on my list, hopefully to get watched before the end of the year. I know we're like four days away, but. It, it's only yeah it, there are several movies that are on my list that i haven't seen that are probably showing up on people's top 10 and the only maybe the only reason they're not in my top 10 potentially is because i haven't seen them yet so no it's okay <laughs> sorry not sorry i guess <laughs> well my number two or my second best actor performance goes to bradley cooper in a star is born and this is really a surprise for me not because I don't think Bradley Cooper can't act. He is a favorite of mine. And surprisingly, some of his, his best performances for me, or some of my favorites, have been when he voices Rocket, Raccoon, and the fact that I cannot tell that it's his voice. And I think it's that, that particular element of not being able to tell who he is, that is what makes his performance in A Star is Born so memorable. Because his voice in particular is altered. If you were to run some dialogue through my ears with me not having seen A Star is Born, not knowing that Bradley Cooper was in it, I would not have been able to tell that it was his voice. 
and there's a little bit of nuance that exists when you as an actor or an actress are able to not only like Remy Malik transform your physical appearance but also to transform your oral type of performance and being able to get into a particular role we get introduced to him and he is a struggling kind of not over the hill artist but he's definitely getting past his prime he's seasoned and his voice articulates that the way in which he talks throughout the film it's very raspy it's very it feels very old it feels very used very seasoned just like him as a musician but then to find out that he actually sings these songs that he performs that he's not lip syncing that he actually plays the instruments that he spent almost a year to a year and a half learning to play the guitar and taking vocal lessons to get immersed into a fictitious role by the way this was not a biopic but everything about his performance made me believe that he there is a character out there, there's an actual person out there that he is reflecting and to couple that with his chemistry with Lady Gaga I think elevates him to a place of of real excellence in terms of his acting prowess again I didn't think he was a terrible actor or a decent actor. I thought he was a great actor to begin with. But a performance like A Star is Born takes him to another level for me. And then you, this is kind of a cheat, but you add that directory, that director credit to his resume. And to me, I think he's probably one of the more successful celebrities in movies this year. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's no doubt about that, uh, that he's one of the most successful this year. That is for sure. And he's a great choice. Um, also, not super surprising to me. Um, and I agree. He embodies that character because just like I was telling you earlier today, I want a T-shirt of that <laughs> character. Uh, Jackson, Maine. I need that T-shirt bad. Well, my number two. I, now, see, you got me saying two. My other my second male uh, actor to recognize in this section for favorite performances is John Cho. Now, John Cho, I knew from primarily two things. One was Star Trek, uh, the rebooted series as Sulu, and a movie that came out, was it last year, I believe, called Columbus uh, with Haley Lou Richardson that I absolutely adored. And he's fantastic in that. And in that movie, I kind of knew, I was like, okay, this guy can carry a film. Well, the movie that he was in this year is called Searching. And this one was off my radar completely. Another one like blind spotting that I had no idea what it was about until uh, our contributor, Don Shanahan uh, told me how it was his favorite movie of the year at the time. And that I absolutely had to just go see it. He wasn't going to tell me anything about it. And so I was able to go attend a screening. And what this movie is, is it's all digital screens. The entire movie is shot from the perspective of an iPhone or an iPad or security camera footage or mirrored video from a TV, things like that. It's really a staggering film in and of itself. And for John Cho to carry it within the realm of having to act only based on the screens that he's interacting with, 
is very impressive. It's a very emotional story. Uh, his daughter's teenage daughter is kidnapped. He's a single parent, so he's dealing with emotional, you know, turmoil kind of by himself. And he gets involved in trying to hunt down what he believes has happened to her. So you can imagine the type of degradation in his character that occurs over the course of this time as things are slowly becoming less and less uh, likely for her to be found. He's losing hope. He's he's struggling to maintain it, rather. Um, and he's fighting through these feelings and emotions of how to deal with people that he may be, uh, fi- you know, maybe assuming guilt of, uh, and, and whether it's correctly or incorrectly. And it's just an incredibly nuanced performance that, like I said, takes so much of it takes place on the screens that there's there's this subtlety in every single body position and inflection of his voice that matters more than it would ever matter if the director was helping his performance along by moving a camera in a way that could support his performance. If that, I hope that makes sense. There's a lot less of that that can be done because of the way this movie was filmed, and he carries it um, as pretty much the solo lead for you know a good 75% of this film. He's the only one really we're dealing with. Uh, I mean, I'm completely immersed in it when it's just him texting and saying things as he's trying to text and figure out what the best way to communicate with his teenage daughter is. Um, things like that that are very, very relatable. And it just absolutely stuck out as me to me as one of the best performances of the year and cemented him as someone that is right there on my must-see list whenever he puts something out. I like John Cho a lot, and I haven't seen Searching, but I want to. And his performance in Star Trek was enough for me to be like, I want to see him in more things. So that excites me that he's got other stuff out there, and um, I've got Searching ready to ready to watch at some point. Um, got to put it somewhere, but it'll get done soon. All right, so now we're on to female performances. So the first of my two female performances... <laughs> is um is not real it's it's obvious but it's well i'll just go ahead and say it it's elsie fisher from eighth grade so eighth grade was a movie that i got a chance to watch uh late this year it was one that i wanted to watch but couldn't because it didn't release uh in one of our theaters here it was one of those that just got a limited release and so when it finally hit the 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 video dvd whatever we're calling that market i uh, i popped it in and i remember i think i was texting you and i said why am i crying while i'm on the treadmill at the gym i should not be crying at the gym and it had to do with her performance and i don't know how old she is i didn't look up on imdb how old she actually is but if i'm if i'm watching this performance I'm completely immersed in believing that this is a 12 to 13 year old girl who is trying to figure out what her life needs to be in junior high school. And first of all, I don't have a daughter, I have a son. And so I don't know what that world's going to be like when my son hits junior high, at least not from the female side. But I remember being awkward 
in junior high and having this literal middle school, this middle ground of like, okay, I'm not in elementary school anymore, but I'm not quite in high school. I'm in this weird kind of place. Maybe it's kind of like, I don't know, some kind of, I don't know, just this middle jello mold of, of weirdness at being a, a juvenile and watching her performance, watching her go through her story and trying to figure out what it means to be a teenager and what it means to find success and being accepted for, for who you are, having her walk through real life stuff that kids deal with under the umbrella of today's technology and social media and how that plays such a part. I, I left that movie experience going, my heart breaks for her. And it also brings a sense of hope for her because of how the movie sort of plays out. And again, without giving a whole ton of spoilers, what we see is a performance where this girl starts off showing confidence, but not, but showing a false sense of confidence and seeing how that confidence eventually becomes real for her through a series of circumstances, one of which I got incredibly mad at and Aaron, you can attest to this. Um, but seeing her go through this and really embracing this, this, this role of an awkward teenager, it's more than just being an awkward teenager. It's being a teenager who is really trying to find out who she's meant to be, not even in the next five years, but in the next five months, the next five weeks. I mean, she's living her life a, a day and a week at a time and discovering new things and trying things out. And it's a very honest portrayal to me. Uh, one that I experienced in my own right when I was in junior high, one that I know my son's going to experience when he gets there, how I'm going to deal with that as a parent. I'll probably be like her dad <laughs> in some way, shape or form for better or for worse. But, um, but I really, really, really adored her performance in this. It's a very, very good choice. I, uh, I like that a lot. Um, my number three er, my number three, gosh, here we go. My, my first female choice is ditto, uh, <laughs> because it's Elsie Fisher as well. And, uh, I'm not shocked that you put it on there. Um, I know that I'm not the only one that's high on her and seemingly everybody across the board really recognizes her incredible performance. We voted her as the most outstanding youth performance of the year. Seattle Film Critics Society this year, and I was really glad about that. Yeah, it's authentic. It's honest, like you said, and it's gutsy to me. I mean, this is a 13-year-old girl who has never acted before in this capacity that is willing to display all of the awkwardness and the 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 most terrible things about being her age that everybody makes fun of you for. And she's putting her own body on display as an actress um, for us to absolutely experience that through. It is just, I just have so much respect for her for doing that. I'm so impressed by it. I'm so grateful to her for allowing us to, to be able to experience that through her and you know i watched it with my daughter we we totally 
laughed and, and poked fun the whole time and kind of like got to bond over this film. And then, of course, the moment you're talking about as somebody who does have a teenage daughter, I about died. Um, and I still haven't gotten over that moment this year. Uh, God forbid that ever happened. I swear, ever. Um, but there is a lot about this character that, you know, I have experienced as the father of a just past eighth grade daughter and of an actual eighth grade son. Like, I, I know what this feels like, and it feels authentic to me and to the experiences I've had. So, yeah, Elsie Fisher absolutely nails it. And I'm really excited to see what she does outside of this. One of the big questions that came up when this movie released was regarding her was, oh, but is she, she's actually a 13-year-old girl. So she really, like, playing a part? Like, isn't that just her? You know what? No, it's not. And I've listened to plenty of interviews with her and, and read plenty of interviews, and it's not her. This is not – yes, some of the lingo and the way that she talks is her because she's 13, and that's – it's it's authentic. It's capturing what life is like for a 13-year-old in 2018. So, of course, she would actually experience some of that, but not the range of uh, emotional awkwardness that she goes through. She hasn't experienced all of that, but she's been around it, and so she drew from that in order to channel it all into this character, which is incredible performance for sure. Absolutely. And tying into that, if we're going to talk about great young performances, my, my other female outstanding performance is, and I hope I don't butcher her name, Amandla Sternberg from the hate you give. She played, is that, is that correct? I thought it was Amanda, but yeah, I mean, I thought it was just Amanda. Is it not? She's got an L in, in her name. Huh? Maybe it is. Well, wow. So if, if I'm wrong, I apologize if you're listening, Amanda or Amanda, Mr. Whose, whose dream role I just recently read is to play the daughter of Vernita Green in Kill Bill 3. She wants Tarantino to write her in so that she can take it, take it face off against Beatrix Kiddo, <laughs> getting revenge for her mother's death. Well, all right. Going from star to another star. Uh, right. Okay. Go ahead. So like eighth grade, I recently in the last couple of weeks, got a chance to watch The Hate You Give. And you mentioned earlier in being in the right mindset to watch particular films. This is one of those. This is one of those you don't want to have your phone out. You want to be fully immersed because it's hitting on the pulse of what our culture is right now and the hot button issues that are going on with race relations and police officers and African-American culture. And it's hard to watch because there's so much truth and so much authenticity that lives in this narrative. And the really the only reason why is because I say the only reason, one of the main reasons why is because of her performance and watching her as her character star understand and become educated in the world around her not only early on in the movie when she's told how to act around police officers if she's pulled over, which is a world that I don't understand, and how she is growing through the course of the story and being able to take action, not for somebody else's cause, not for her mom's cause or her friends at school's cause, but because she believes in the cause, by the end of the film, what we see is someone who is saying something 
and saying something with emotion and with meaning and with value because she believes in it, not because she was part of the situation that led to this stream of events that took place. She is, she goes from being the spokesperson to the person that leads the charge with, with real authenticity. And I watch her and I watch her art go from naive, one-sided, I don't want this, I've got to take this, I take it, and now there's this new normal that she experiences. It's interesting, I'm, I've got this hero's journey in my head through a lot of these movies since we started talking about it from Mary Poppins, and she does that. There's a new normal for her that that plays out at the end of the movie that leaves me with a sense of hope. And that's something that made that movie stand out was it wasn't a movie that said, look how crappy the world is and let's make you feel the crap of where we're at. But it leaves you with a sense of look what it could become in a not so similar way that Green Book does, but leaving that same kind of that same kind of um, hope that there is a better way. And that better way begins with understanding and her leading that charge and her carrying that message through her own growth, I think puts her in that, that top category of uh, female performance. Great, great choice. Um, loved her a lot. And it would have been a really tough uh, thing for us in our Seattle film critics awards. Actually, if she was eligible for our youth performance award, she was like just not eligible by, I think, you know, a matter of months she was too old, so that helped out because <laughs> it was a stacked category. There are a lot of young female actresses this year. Well, my other female actress performance that I'm going to talk about here real quick is Lady Gaga in A Star is Born. It's my kind of no-brainer, like, I can't help it performance, and I-, I would love to have picked something more outside of, I don't know, mainstream, but... Here's the thing, as you know, because you are my best friend and you get to hear me talk about it all the time, I cannot shake this film. Um, It's not my number one of the year, whatever, rankings, all that aside, I can't get rid of A Star is Born. I have tried to be overly critical of that film um, just to figure out what's not perfect about it, but I, I love it, and I think much like you referenced because of Cooper, the biggest part of it for me is Lady Gaga. And I think the reasoning is very personal because I was not a Lady Gaga fan. In fact, I would probably be labeled a Lady Gaga hater going into this movie. Didn't really care for her music that much. Um, Felt she was just wacky for the sake of being wacky, which I'm not necessarily backtracking on that. But I would never have believed that she had the artistry in her to pull this off. And I don't care if she is an actual musician who's essentially kind of playing herself or a character like someone she's experienced and knows in the music industry. It's like Elsie Fisher. Just because she has that experience doesn't make it less of a performance. It's not her that she's playing. She's playing Allie. The way that 
she is able to emote it is just incredible to me um and the fact that she can hold her own with you know an oscar nominated i believe i'm sure he i think he has been right an oscar nominated actor and never miss a beat like you would never point her out and think to yourself oh she's a lesser actress than that lead lead actor she's right there on par the entire film and in the moments that she needs to carry it which is a good chunk of the center of this movie she does so without problem at all um she really really blew me away and i think that i walked away from this feeling like that is the next special actress for hollywood like she's the one she's the triple threat who can sing dance and act that we just don't see hardly at all you know very very rare do we get those actresses or actors that come along that can do all of those things at the absolute highest level i believe she can and i would love to see what she does with something that's outside of the musical genre but it's because of her that I connect so much with this movie and, um, you know, her powerhouse vocals, of course, being a part of that. But I loved it. I, I loved her. Um, I have not soured on her one bit. I know that the posh thing to do is to move on from the front runner once everybody thinks she's the front runner and everybody thinks Lady Gaga is the best. But then more movies come out and we decide that Lady Gaga was never the best. And why would we ever think Lady Gaga? But she's always been my best. And uh I'm here to stay as a fan. Good deal. She was a surprise for me too. She was my my third in the list of two. <laughs> well, I have one quick mention, and I know that you're going to agree with me on this. I just want to point out Nick Offerman in Hearts Beat Loud. Mm-hmm. One of the most understated performances of the year. No one is going to be nominating him for awards. He's not in any critics' mentions. He's not going to be in any Globes or Oscar conversations. But it's a performance that both you and I resonated with very deeply and thought was very special, considering uh, his history of performances and what he does well. We've known him to do well. This was much more dramatic, but with his signature charm to it, um, and just in a way that we really hadn't seen before, he stood out, he carried it, and and he hits a home run and makes that movie so amazing for both of us. And I just want to point that out. Nick Offerman, we love his performance. Absolutely. He reminds me a lot of Steve Carell in terms of the the range that I'm starting to see from him. I hope to see more dramatic stuff from him because I love his comedy. But to see somebody who's able to have that kind of balance, I think, gets my utmost respect. All right, man. Well, um, I guess we should move it right along. Um, these episodes are definitely long, listeners, so if you're listening to this in chunks, you just go ahead and do that. That's totally okay. But we like to talk we about do. things we love. That's what this podcast is all about, and these are all things we love for the most part. We're about to talk about something we didn't love, so right after I said that, of course, go figure. <laughs> uh, but first, we're going to talk about more things we do love, which is the movies that most exceeded our expectations. And we keep this, these smaller so that they go quicker. So, Patrick... What movie was your highest high that most exceeded your expectations going into it? This is easy peasy for me. Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse easily exceeded my expectations. And you're making this face like it was a surprise. This was (laughs) 
if you listen to, I think it was our, I want to say it was our greatest showman episode. We had talked a little bit in some bonus content about our most anticipated movies of the next year. And, or maybe it was this, this one last year. I was like, Hey, this movie spider verse is coming out. I know the comic. I love the art that this is going to be using in its animation. I don't know what it is, but why are you teasing this so far ahead of time? I completely, completely fell in love with this when I saw it. And I wasn't necessarily nervous about it, mostly because everybody that had seen it was like, dude, dude. But I didn't know what to expect. I mean, I knew visually some of the things there, but I didn't know how that story was going to be played out. It's one that I enjoyed reading, but it's also pretty massive. And when I when I left the theater, I remember thinking, I love what they changed and I love what they kept. And I love what can be done because of how they left it. So I look at Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse and I think I, I see it going around social media. I'm like, okay, re-rank all your Spider-Man movies. And I get that this is in that ranking. I was talking to Jeff Norman about his list and I'd said that Amazing Spider-Man's, for better or worse, always gonna be my number one just because of my affection for Andrew Garfield as an actor. I love Emma Stone, but also the relationship between Peter and Gwen. And I say Peter and Gwen very, very intentionally. And I think in part, Into the Spider-Verse becomes my number two because of, not that relationship, but because of the two characters existing in this movie. Spider-Gwen and these multiple versions of Peter Parker, Peter B. Parker, who we get to know more so than uh, than the original Peter Parker for reasons that you'll have to see the movie to find out for. But in general, I was really excited about this movie when I saw the teaser for it at the end of last year. And it got me just anticipating it and anticipating it and then finishing it off by actually sitting in the theater, watching this thing in 3D, and then hearing everybody else around me not just in the theater but also on social media and everywhere just being like this is an amazing movie i'm like this was my greatest showman of 2018 and exceeded my expectations and i love that feeling when you go in saying i want this to be amazing no pun intended and it turns out to be even more than that so way to go spider-man very cool i'm not surprised at all um that you loved it so much um i was just surprised that it was able to exceed you and your highest expectations. That is really something special. Um, but that's what I experienced with La La Land when that happened, and that was an incredible feeling, so I'm very happy for you. Um, so mine most exceeded expectations uh, film. The real answer here is Aquaman, okay? Um, but I'm not going to talk about Aquaman because we're going to be having a full episode about that coming up after this end-of-year review, and you will hear... All of my glorious, lovely praise of that film in long form afterwards. So I'm going to save that for a moment later. Uh, but just know that because of the fact that I went into Aquaman with literally probably negative expectations, uh, because I didn't care one lick about this character and probably zero about superhero movies in the DC universe at this point, altogether i was getting so sour on them that the fact that it blew me away and you know it, it has become such an incredible experience for me 
um, in so many ways uh, that it's definitely my number one. But going beyond that uh, to something I can actually say for more about why Paddington 2 was really close. And that's because I went into that with zero expectations at all. In fact, I didn't even really want to go because it was a movie about an animated bear is what I thought. It's actually not an animated bear. It's like a CGI bear who's in live action world. And I was incredibly surprised when I came out of that one in love with it. And then it stayed my number one movie for the entire year. That was shocking. But the movie that I think really exceeded my expectations um, that I want to mention is Avengers Infinity War. And the reason for that is because much like the DC thing I just said, you know, I was in a place of extreme Marvel movie burnout going into 2019. We had just come off of Thor Ragnarok and Justice League at the end of last year, two very, very disappointing entries for me in the superhero world, and I was burnt out. Uh, we were getting so many of these films, so much so that I didn't do the Road to Infinity War rewatch of all of the Marvel movies like everybody else was doing because I didn't want to go through all of them. I didn't think there was value in that. I thought Infinity War was just going to be more of the same old Marvel formula and there was no way that it was going to be anything interesting. Even after Black Panther came out, and I really enjoyed that, it still didn't blow me away. So the, the, the thought had gotten to the point where I did not believe that a superhero movie could blow me away. Um, and yes, I am mentioning a second one in this very section, so clearly it's happened twice in this year, which is amazing. But when Avengers Infinity War happened... And I sat down and I realized the culmination of what had occurred over the 20 years of, not 20 years, sorry, uh, over the 10 years and 20 movies um, of this entire created universe, the way that things tied together, the way that everything just so intricately fit together like a perfect puzzle, the emotional journey that that film took me on. Much like Aquaman, the epicness of that journey and that film. I love the length because it was it was worth it. It was valid. It never felt the length because it all needed to happen. It kept driving me forward with the plot, emotionally speaking, um, with this intensity. It was just unlike anything I'd ever experienced, honestly, uh, in the superhero universe up until that point. It still is uh, one of the most unique experiences we've ever had um, and the fact that they pulled that off is super staggering to me and so it will always be just something that is incredible mem incredibly memorable e no matter even if in the game ends up topping it because it, you know final installment has a good shot of doing that just by default mm -hmm. the setup to allow the second part to be able to pay it off in a way that it needs to is as good in its world as the two towers and fellowship of the ring were to me in the Lord of the Rings world right. um, in a comparative universe versus universe type thing. So I loved it and I was just really, really blown away by it. If we were podcasting back in uh, 2012, I would probably say this about Avengers, the first installment of the, uh, I guess the Avengers movies that it was that kind of impact for me i was like wow 
did I just see this on the big screen? Did I see the culmination of all these Marvel characters coming together and not feel like we have a bloated movie? Yes, I think that I did. And Infinity War, I wasn't as high on it, or I'm not as high on it as you are, but not for any negative reasons. It just, this was expected for me. It was as expected. It was amazing, but that amazingness was expected for me when it came to Infinity War. Well, now it's time for the opposite of our most exceeded expectations, which of course is our biggest disappointment. Dun dun dun. Dun dun. We'll keep these pretty quick and brief, Patrick, but uh, what films did not blow you away this year? Well, there were only two, but the one that takes the trophy in this one is Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. You mentioned with Aquaman having sort of a negative expectation and it completely exceeding your expectations. So it goes from a negative yardage to kind of a, a, a plus yardage type thing. I didn't have a lot of high expectations. Most of the time, maybe it's a mental thing to keep me feeling like I'm getting my money's worth because I'm going to the theater, period, that I feel like a movie is going to be fine. And if it's fine, then I'm good. You know, Mary Poppins Returns was one of those movies where I had a decent time with it. I don't feel like my money was wasted. Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom was that way for me. I felt like when I left the theater, I was cheated. Like, what did I just watch? That was way too much and yet not enough. I felt like there was a lot that was incomplete about it. A lot that felt like it was made up on the fly in terms of the narrative. And I'm... I'm one of the guys that liked Jurassic World, a movie that I didn't think I would like until I actually saw it. So I wanted Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom to succeed. I wanted the next iteration to feel like it was a step forward. And instead, it felt rushed and it felt like it was two steps backwards in terms of what Jurassic World had helped set up. So for me, to leave the theater telling my wife I didn't like that at all is a rare thing for me. And I wanted to. I wanted to at least feel like, hey, this is dinosaurs on the big screen. What else can you ask for? Well, I wanted more. And if you guys want to hear my opinion more in detail, you can check out our episode on it. I like that plug. It's good stuff. (laughs) Um, That was my honorable mention, along with Mute by Duncan Jones, which was a huge humongous disappointment still my least liked movie of the year um it doesn't end up taking my spot here because i think my expectations for it were just a little lower than my ones for my number one choice here but mute was definitely a big disappointment and then jurassic world was abysmal as well but my biggest disappointment is because the film that i'm listing is a film that both years we've done this episode was on my most anticipated movie of the year list. And that should in and of itself be like a sign that if you're listing it twice (laughs) and it sucked, then it definitely goes here. That's, that's a given. So part of the problem is it was on our most anticipated movie list twice as something called God particle, but that's not what this movie came out as. No, no, it did not. This movie came out as something called, the Cloverfield Paradox. Now, after Cloverfield Lane, we were on an extreme high with the Cloverfield verse. We thought that the sky was the limit 
and we were really excited to see about where these new stories could go with these small little subtle tie-ins, hopefully, to kind of bring them together. It was a really cool playground. And so when Cloverfield Paradox came out and disappointed, it was it was pretty bad. I mean, this is the thing. This is what happens when you take a couple of great films and you try to write an entire movie to explain how and why they are tied together instead of just trying to tell your own unique story. It became this wild collection of ideas thrown together. And I think that they expected us to accept it all, even though it was a complete mess, just because they, quote unquote, like accidentally opened Pandora's box. And so because of that, we don't have to explain things. Uh, you just have to go with it. You know, it doesn't have to make any sense or, or be any kind of cohesive narrative. So the visuals in Cloverfield Paradox were, at times, decent to good. But otherwise, there was just nothing I liked about it, Patrick. There was no tension. Um, so boring compared to both of its predecessors. It was ridiculous to a fault. Uh, it was completely, tonally uneven. And it seemingly tries to solve the mystery of both of the previous Cloverfield stories. But the mystery is what makes those movies interesting to me. So I don't want a movie that's trying to solve them. I honestly knew we were doomed from the moment that they surprise announced this to be coming out on Netflix during the Super Bowl. It was like an advertisement popped up that said, oh, hey, by the way, the Cloverfield Paradox, which I believe was the first time we found out it was renamed, is coming out in like two hours watch it tonight on netflix and i was like oh no this is a terrible terrible sign like when you realize that the stu it's so bad that the studio is bailing on it um it it just you knew that it was something was wrong and of course that's what happened i wanted to be wrong i wanted it to be amazing and to be another incredible entry into that universe but Alas, it was not, and therefore is my biggest disappointment of the year. Well, we can still hang our hats on the Cloverfield, uh, King Cloverfield Lane. Yes, we absolutely can. Definitely the best in the series, yeah. uh, in my opinion. Agreed. Next section up is our favorite episode of the show to record. And I actually broke mine down into a couple different sections when I give mine, just so you know, but um, I did a main episode and a mini-sode. But, um, yeah, would you, what did you come up with here? Or did you want me to go first? Uh, well, I can go first. It's okay. It, it was a tie. And so it's our show. We can do what we want. Right. So the, t the tie for me for episode was, uh, the episode 100.1.2.3, not necessarily because of the fantastic conversation, although it was there, but the fact that we hit a hundred episodes as a duo here, I, I hearken back to our, our first episode, Batman v Superman. You had put up an article that Andrew Dice had, uh, had written on screen rant referencing our conversation with him about BBS, which reminded me of our very first episode. And I remember thinking about the fact that we weren't thinking this long-term we were thinking, Hey, let's see what kind of hits we can get. And we were celebrating, look at that. We got 50 downloads today. That's awesome. And, to hit 100 episodes and to cover the Toy Story trilogy, 
a trilogy that is synonymous with friendship and what it means to go through a bundle of things, um, I think is very parallel to our journey as friends and our journey through those first hundred episodes of walking through format and walking through different types of events that we could put together. It to me was a celebration and I think it was worth celebrating. It still is. I mean, we're what 140 something episodes in now and I'm still just kind of like, what what's happening here? But being able to hit that milestone and to be able to celebrate it by talking about these two characters, Woody and Buzz and their journey together was really just, it was more celebratory than anything else. And it made me feel good. The second for me was our Karate Kid episode with Adam Rakoff. So Adam, as listeners, if you know this, Adam Rakoff is uh, a good friend of, of, of Matthew Modine. We had an opportunity to interview him last year or earlier this year, which is pretty fantastic when we covered the Full Metal Jacket episode. We got to talk about his book and how it became this app and audiobook, and how Adam had helped develop that. So we got to interview both him and Matthew. Well, later on through that, we kind of befriended Adam and found out that, like us, he is a child of the 80s. He's a huge fan of Back to the Future, which already pegs him to be a guest when we cover that trilogy or at least the first one. And so when the Karate Kid came up, because of the fact that the YouTube Red series Cobra Kai had debuted, we thought, what a fantastic opportunity to bring him on and not have him on as an interviewee, but as a full on guest. So we got to hear his one. We got to hear his uh, one word takeaway. We got to hear his connecting point. But more than anything, we got a chance to just talk about a movie with a guy who appreciates film like we do and could celebrate a movie like The Karate Kid. As a side note, we also got some really great graphics out of the deal. He's a fantastic graphic artist. And so there were some great visual plugs for the show that I almost want to frame and put on my wall because he does such a great job. So getting a chance to just talk to him as a fellow film lover beyond just the specific reason why we initially connected with him was pretty fantastic. That's great. And I'm really glad to hear you choose episodes that I didn't. <laughs> um, so we get to mention more amazing episodes. Yeah. Um, episode 100 is definitely memorable and was high on my list, but I love to cheat. That's my favorite thing when we come to doing lists. And so I kind of cheated. And what I did is I kind of, well, you sort of cheated because you picked three and one. Well, I, I picked, I picked four and one. <laughs> I bundled my favorite episode of the year, favorite main episode of the year, into this, Patrick. Our sports episodes. That's what I remember the most from this year. In episode 97, we got to talk Miracle. It was my first time ever seeing the film. It was an immediate five-star experience for me. It was during the Olympics. Just awesome, awesome episode. Didn't know and didn't realize it was directed by Gavin O'Connor at the time. Uh, but then we got to talk about Gavin's other film that I already loved, which in episode 105 is Warrior, another one that is just one of my favorite sports movies of all time. Then we got to talk about Creed and Creed 2 in episodes 136 and 137. And so that foursome of movies was much like you were talking about, like 
such a connective like piece because it it hits on things that are a big part of our friendship outside of the podcast but that we got to discuss within the context of movies on the podcast it's just a really really cool experience for me and i loved every single one of those um they're all four you know some of the the absolute best sports movies that i've ever seen and getting to talk through them in depth with you was a joy and i'm so glad we got to cover them and so i just i, I will think back to this year as being the year that we got to hit on all of those um so that's my main episode for my favorite mini-sode, it was actually episode 95.1, which was the mentioned episode you said, uh, the interview with Matthew Modine. It was our first. Um, it's not our best. I, to, to this day, regret not editing that episode better uh, before putting it out. I probably should go back and do it at some point. I, I remember Matthew at the end saying, yeah, I thought you would have like cleaned up my ums and, and made me sound better, you know, and I was like, what? Why would I do that? Like, I just throw episodes out. That's what I do. But now, with my experience, having done this quite a few times since then, I realized what he was saying. But just having someone like Matthew, even through a friend, Adam Rakoff, being generous enough to come on our show, like, when we're nobody. Like, you, like you said, like it's amazing to me that we're at 100 episodes. We're at 140 whatever we are now. This is mini-sode number 59, so we're talking 200 episodes together essentially and this this guy matthew modine this like actor this this star of full metal jacket that we just got discussing is willing to come on and and have a conversation about it with us it was amazing um i I remember just you and i looking at each other and grinning from ear to ear because matthew was on the phone he couldn't see us um so he didn't get to see our facial reaction but we were just like reacting to each other with our eyes as he was talking and just being blown away constantly. And and we'll never forget that. Gosh, Um, we'll never have another first. Right. Um, we learned so much about like what it was like to interview people and it gave us a foot in the door. And the other one that I was going to mention was, you know, the, the interview that we got to do together with Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead. That was the, you know, I think that happens largely because we're able to say, Hey, we, we talked to Matthew Modine and everybody knows Matthew Modine. So it gives us some street cred, and the conversation with those guys was incredible um, for reasons that you already mentioned when you talked about um, their films as well. And then uh, lastly, my favorite solo episode, I just wanted to say, was uh, the interview that I did in Minnesota 53 with Alex Honnold. Still stands as easily one of my top two or three favorite moments of my entire year, my entire podcasting slash film critic career. Um, Free Solo was a special experience and movie for me to watch. And just having that conversation with Alex was super cool. Um, you know, this guy is the national geographic adventure of the year. He's starring in this documentary that very well will be Oscar nominated, could potentially win an Oscar. And he's a totally down to earth dude who just talked to me casually about what he loves to do climbing in the outdoors. It was an awesome conversation. It flowed so easily um, was a highlight for me of forever. Uh, so especially for this year. So the 2019 goals are to get Pasek and Paul on the show after we've seen Dear Evan Hansen. That's the 2019 goal for us right there. Yeah. Um, yeah, we should. I've reached out to him before. We should, we should definitely do that. And then Eric Heiser is on doc is on deck as well. Um, he's confirmed as 
definitely wanting to come on the show. We were just waiting for him to have a project. I guess we could have asked him to talk about Bird Box, but I think I'm holding out for uh, the Your Name adaptation yes. to drop. As, as scared as I am about that, I think that's the time I want to be able to talk to Eric Heiser. But yeah, upwards and onwards, more interviews. They're always fun. Next section, next to last section, and the one that probably is the most, um, I don't know, indicative of what we do here. This is our feeling five. We're not going to go in depth with reviews of these films, but um, we each picked five films that we most connected with, kind of like our CP. Um, and we just were going to briefly go through those lists with some of the emotions that um, these films evoke in us that make them special. So, Patrick? Give me one of yours. All right. Uh, Creed 2 uh, comes up first in terms of being surprisingly on my feeling five. I mean, not surprising that I love the franchise and I can call it a franchise at this point because we have two films in the Creed franchise, not necessarily in the Rocky universe. But I was surprised at how much I was connected to these characters after having seen the, the, the first Creed and being like, how can you evoke some kind of connective tissue with me? And I specifically remember there were two scenes that I mentioned on the show, on the episode, where I teared up. And, of course, they play into father-son type stuff and what it's like to be a parent and to have an issue going on with your child, uh, being a father to a son. It's obviously a very visceral thing. But I was really surprised at how connected I got to even the Drago father-son relationship. I thought that it was, it could have had more. I, I think I needed a little bit more from their, from their side to get full connection. But even what they gave me, in addition to the Creed-Rocky relationship and Rocky and his son's relationship, I got the full impact of the major theme of the, the movie, which is, what it's like to be a father and what it's like to be a son. I love that pick. Um, yeah, I was so pleasantly surprised by Creed 2, man. It was like just on the cusp of my top 10 when I did my rankings this year. I think it was like 13 or 14 or something like that. Like it was in my top 15. And I would have never, ever expected that to happen to a sequel of Creed. You would think, it actually just read today that it, it surpassed the original's box office hall um, just this week. So good for it, man. Yeah, that was an incredible one, and I think that's a great choice. Um, the first one I'm going to mention is Hearts Beat Loud. Just another unexpected joy. Uh, one of those great movies that I watch when while I'm watching it. I'm smiling and thinking to myself, wow, Patrick's going to absolutely love this movie. That's always an amazing feeling to have um, when either of us gets to experience that before the other. And there's just a... It's so charming. It's heartwarming exploration of parenthood uh, between a, a father and a daughter. Um, as I approach that age, that time where my daughter is going to go off to college and I don't know what's going to happen, um, kind of getting to live through some of that ahead of time, the way that they have love for each other um, and, and how they deal with facing the future um, for both the father having this sort of midlife crisis of sorts and then also the daughter. Um, I was able to relate to this one so deeply being a single dad and just you know, at times wanting to hang on to my kids um, 
tighter than maybe they need me to at that moment. Um, and on top of that, it just comes with this amazing soundtrack, wonderful performances across the board um, from Nick Offerman and um, Kelsey Clemens. That's her name. She's incredible. Um, so Hearts Beat Loud really, really did a number on me, and that was my first one. Well, I'll echo that as my second one in that I, you know, you can't, you can't make any list of like top 2018 without including Hearts Beat Loud on it somewhere for my, for, you know, from from my take. Um, it was a very big surprise, and as you mentioned, any time that I hear a from from Aaron, you need to see this. You need to see this, and it, it does happen quite a bit, and. I've got to prioritize things, but occasionally there's one where it'll go beyond the, you need to see this. And it'll be like, no, you really need to see this. This is right up your alley. Go ahead and watch it because we should cover it <laughs> because I know you want to talk about it. So when I got hearts beat loud, watching it, it felt to me a lot like my reaction to sing street, not because it's a movie musical, just like Sing Street is, although that is the case. But also because when I finished it, I immediately wanted to start it over and watch it again. And that's a rare thing for me. It's not just a feel-good movie, but it's a movie that explores a high and low of, as you mentioned, what it's like to have a relationship with your child and what it's like to have to leave your past and the past of your relationship with your child for the sake of something better. And seeing Nick Offerman in a role that is very dramatic, but not overly dramatic, and have that kind of dad joke humor throughout the movie really balanced out Kiersey Clemens' role as his daughter. And I love that the film takes place over the course of like two or three weeks. So it's like this slice of life. This is like, hey, we want you to kind of get into this world for just a little bit, just a couple hours, and then we'll push you back out. But so much happens, even though not a lot really happens. There's so much that it happens emotionally. And as you mentioned, the soundtrack is just spectacular. I remember when, after I watched it, only the first, the title track was on Spotify. And I was like, what? Where are the rest of these songs? And of course, when the movie actually dropped, when the soundtrack dropped with it, everything kind of released on Spotify. So I was incredibly happy to see that. But yeah, it left me feeling great. It left me feeling happy. It left me feeling satisfied. And it left me wanting to buy it for a dollar, like Amazon let me do when it was on. (laughs) So I was happy about that. So yay, hearts beat loud. (laughs) Awesome. Well, my second one um, is actually kind of a, it's a pair of films. And these are the films that I think families should watch with their teenagers section of my list. Okay. Um, and the first of those two is eighth grade. Uh, we've talked about it quite a bit, some already or here already. And that's, you know, covering what it's like to feel isolated and different uh, as you're struggling through your teenage years. And then especially just for me, again, like as a single father. Um, going through this experience, watching a dad who's trying to get his kids' attention, man. I'm at that point now, right? I'm at that point where my son is earbuds in all the time watching YouTube videos and like, I'm trying to get the daggum attention. And I'm like, I want to hang out. Like, I want your attention. <laughs> give it to me. And he doesn't want to give it. 
And so there's a lot in this movie that I can relate to. And the fireside scene at the end of the film just completely just kills me. Um, it's, it's, it's a very emotional moment. Um, brings me the man dad tears, uh, quite a bit at that time. So I love seeing parents and kids come together, um, go through growth opportunities. And this is one of those, those that shows that in a big way. And so it was always going to be one of my most emotional experiences of the year that I had to mention, but the paired film that I would put with this is the hate you give. And that's for reasons similar to you know, things you've already mentioned as well when you were talking about um, Amanda's um, performance. This movie wrecked me from start to finish. I don't think there's another film that I've cried in as consistently throughout this year as this one. I just couldn't believe what I was seeing. And um, it gives me such a perspective on Black Lives Matter's and police violence in gentrification and in a way that even like blind spotting, which deals with gentrification, it deals with completely differently from an adult perspective. But I got to see it from a, a middle school, high school perspective. And it was really, really impactful. And that's why I say this is a movie that if any family is going to sit down and watch a movie with their teen this year, like I would recommend this. It's, it's really important because I feel like we change things generationally. I wholeheartedly believe that. And if we start instilling an understanding in our kids now, they will grow up to be adults that have that same understanding. And then they will raise children that have that same understanding as well. And maybe we can change things for the better. Um, but everything about this movie was awesome. Awesomely made. Um, but it's just such it's so full of complex thematic material um, that really is, is heartbreaking and evocative and super duper important for us to see uh, that just, I can't say enough about like the whole walk a mile in someone's shoes. This movie lets you do that in a way that it's strange. I've had conversations with close friends and coworkers about this very thing, but for some reason I got to visualize it throughout this, this fictional um, story in a way that is more impactful <laughs> in some ways than hearing it secondhand from them. Right. And those two movies make my third and fourth. So, <laughs> but I think the, the thing that stands out to me the most is that they're both conversation starters and they're, they're meant to be that way for different reasons. And they explore similar themes, but in their own right, you leave the movie experience having questions about life as a eighth grader or life as a young black woman or life living in the other side of town or life living as a child without two parents. Um, there are so many different topics that you can talk about with people, with other kids, um, with other adults. I remember having breakfast with a good friend of mine, asking him if he'd seen The Hate You Give, and he says, oh yeah, and uh, and he's black. And as we were talking through it, I said, you know, the thing that I pulled away from it the most is that the, in particular, that film allows people to 
admit that they don't know everything. It says, I don't know what it's like to be black. And he responded immediately and said, and I don't know what it's like to be white. And we both agreed that the hate you give in particular gives people from different places common ground to work from and to understand each other. And to an extent, eighth grade does that too, because I could dismiss young junior high and high school kids as being like those pesky millennials who don't care about anything. But that would be not just inappropriate, but it'd be disrespectful because there's a lot about living life in that world that hasn't changed since I was in that position, since I was a kid. And I can be okay saying, I don't understand what it's like to be an eighth grader right now, but I want to understand it. And I think in each of their own ways, they allow us to visualize that. They allow us to understand it at least in a way that we can connect to it emotionally, intellectually. And, uh, and, and to me, that's important. I agree, man. I agree. Um, so I have a, a few left here and I'm, I'm guessing that at least one of them is your last remaining one. So I'm going to go ahead and, uh, guess which one that is. Okay. And let you lead. Well, no, I've already given you my third and fourth. So you've got to give me your third. Is won't you, is won't you be my neighbor? You're number five. You know, I made a choice not to put documentaries on this list. Okay, so I'm going to talk about Won't You Be My Neighbor real quick, do it. because I thought that would for sure be it. So I'm really glad I, that I didn't. I did get emotional in it, though. So yeah. Um, You know, I did too. And the thing for me, unlike you, going into this is like I didn't have history with Mr. Rogers at all. For me, I knew of Mr. Rogers. Of course, I'd seen Mr. Rogers growing up, but... I couldn't have told you anything about this man. So it was a, tr it was a complete learning experience for me. In fact, I probably held some assumptions and bias about his character just from what I'd seen on TV. Like, ah, that goofy, weird guy who talks all prim and proper to kids. Like he's very weird and strange. I never saw him in the same way until after watching this documentary. And um, it, it just, it completely floored me. It taught me so much about kindness, about, ha about well, not about kindness, but about what it means to be devoted to bringing kindness to others as a life choice <laughs> at all times, which is what he did. Um, he was completely respectful at all times. He had a heart for serving others, for ministry, for child development. All of these things that I was unaware of. And to see interview after interview after interview confirm over and over and over that this man's character was truly what we all saw was such a breath of fresh air compared to modern day social media takedowns of things like, oh, we have an Oscar host. Oh, 24 hours have passed. We found tweets from six years ago. So, nope, he's not who we thought he was. Mr. Rogers would have been able to host the Oscars. Okay, and that's pretty darn special. And it's amazing the heart that this man had for children. Today, he probably would have been called a pedophile. I mean, I, I hate to say that, but like, you know what I'm saying? He would have been labeled. He would have had people who wanted to pick him apart and judge him 
when his heart was clear uh, and he just wanted to be kind and help people um, heal and learn and grow. He was an amazing soul. Um, he truly lived out the tenets of our faith in a way that not many people ever have. Uh, you know, and his, his, there's quotes in the film to that extent where his own, his own son says, you know, it was hard living up to basically the man that is the almost equivalent of Jesus essentially <laughs> without being the son of God. Like, how do you do that? Right. Um, but what it showed me is like, this is this kind of attitude. His kind of heart is what the world needs desperately. And if seeing this film triggers that in one single person or triggers that in me, in the actions that I take on a daily basis, then it's a great success, um, and that's what I hope that I took away from it. So it, it was a really impactful film. Well, I agree with all that. In fact, um, my wife got me the biography that this documentary is based on. I don't know that you could have a – I don't know if that's ever been done where you have a book that – anyway. And there's a quote at the very beginning. I haven't started reading it yet, but I read the original – this opening quote from Red Roger, Red Rogers – from Fred Rogers – he says, there are three ways to ultimate success. If you're paying attention, listen. The first way is to be kind. The second way is to be kind. And the third way is to be kind. And if that doesn't set you up for the life that you're about to get into, and this documentary articulates this incredibly clearly, I don't know what does. Because... Fred Rogers, I'm going to say this very bluntly, I don't think he needs a biopic. I think that documentary was enough. And I almost feel like it's exploitative. <laughs> and I say that very just prejudiciously because that's not a word. I say that very much not knowing what's coming. But my hesitation is that the life of Fred Rogers doesn't need to be a biopic because a biopic in and of itself can take liberties with a person's life and his life doesn't need to have liberties taken with it. And you can make that argument for a lot of people. But for me personally, growing up with Mr. Rogers neighborhood and having that kind of connection, I don't want that. I don't want to see him portrayed in any other way than through the eyes of a documentarian, knowing full well that a documentarian has his own story that he's telling. But I feel like that's a little bit more authentic than a biopic. I'm with you, man. I'm 100% with you. I don't want to see it either. I mean, I'll go see it. Sure. But I, I wish it didn't exist. Yeah. So, But we'll see. We'll see. Our, our minds could change over the course of the year. Well, my last one is, I don't know if it's a surprise, but I think it was somewhat of a, and these are not obviously in any ranked order. It was just kind of the fifth one because of how we have discussed it. But I pulled out A Star is Born. And this was one that, I didn't have a lot of like, wow, I want to go see this. I wasn't, I hadn't seen any of the previous iterations. And unfortunately, against the wisdom of you and Jeremy, did watch the 1970s version, which I can't get out of my mind now. Um, in spite of that, I looked at a movie like this and the, the strong performances by Bradley Cooper and Lady Gaga walking through this messy narrative of what it means to be an upcoming rock star and what it means to be kind of a rock star that's leaving 
and in the twilight years of his career and seeing how drug addiction and alcohol addiction take their toll. Uh, we've talked a little bit about Tony Stark in this road to um, road to Endgame and how we see hints of his alcoholism start happening at the very beginning of this whole series with Iron Man. The the addiction aspect of this is on full display from the very beginning. And it hints at where we see Bradley Cooper's character going, even though we don't know the ending. We don't know how it's going to play out. But from the very beginning, I'm watching this movie going, I don't know if there's going to be a lot of hope when I leave the theater. And it was, it was a, it was a heavy movie. I remember leaving and asking Krisha, Hey, what did you think of that? And she goes, man, that was a lot. <laughs> I said, it absolutely was. And there are two pivotal scenes for me that really exemplify that. And without going into too much detail, it's a performance by Bradley Cooper and um, on his own. And there's a performance by, um, by Sam Elliott uh, with Bradley Cooper that, completely wrecked me in those little these small moments but watching a star is born i almost i want to watch it again but i felt like i needed to take a deep breath and take a some time away before actually immersing myself into it again because it's just a it's a lot to take in and it's almost unexpected uh, even though you don't really know what to expect i wasn't familiar with the story so going into it and getting what I got out of it was just incredibly emotional. I agree. And it's on my list as well. Um, shocker. <laughs> just for all the reasons you talked about, you know, the tragedy of stardom and alcoholism, those two things both um, are explored in such detail in a way that really brings them to something we can understand. Then, the two pieces of this film that connect with me on a deep personal level, just the heightened feeling of loving someone who is passionate and shares your passions, seeing the moments between the two of these characters. I I've said it before and I'll say it till I'm blue in the face. The first hour of this movie is my favorite film of 2018. Um, if it was just that hour of the introductory concert leading up to Lady Gaga belting out shallow on stage. Uh, it's incredible. Um, the emotion that I go through and watching these two fall for each other and watching his character begin to show her love through acts of, of, of sacrifice and not just through his words um, was pretty pretty powerful for me. Uh, and then uh, the last part is just this movie and the way that it handles the feelings of trying to move on from a loss in a relationship and how do you deal with that? Um, there's a song in this called I'll Never Love Again that brings me to tears every single time. There's a song in this that's called Always Remember You That Way. Um, that brings me to tears every single time. So on a very personal level, this movie impacts me and I think always will. 
So, without going into any more detail than that, that's why it's on my list. Fine and good. Yay. Yay. I have a couple quick other ones. Um, do you have anything left? Yeah, I've got some honorable mentions for Fun Factor and just feel goodness. Um, I've got Sierra Burgess is a Loser, the Netflix original movie that I just kind of I kind of yeah. fell in love with this year. Crazy Rich Asians, which just makes me completely happy. And then, of course, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, which gives me a big fist pump. Good stuff. Well, my number five was Green Book. Um, and we went into depth on that episode, so listeners, you can check that out if you'd like. But I just found this film incredibly inspirational. Um, the depiction that it gives us uh, between its two characters of mutual respect and admiration, the growth that they go through to get there it was really great to see the way that they listen to each other, they learn from each other. And it, this movie just it gave me this hopeful view that real human change could overcome racism someday. Um, and between it and the hate you give, um, the blind spotting, there's so many movies that deal with race this year, black Klansmen, sorry to bother you. The list goes on and on, but I prefer the way the green book handles it. I've said it and uh, I stand by that. And that's because I want to believe this. And I, I love seeing stories, real stories of people who are able to overcome their inherent biases against each other um, to become great friends and see each other just as equals in all respects. And that one will stick with me because of that. And then the other honorable mention that I had just down, um, one of them is Aquaman, which again, you'll get the episode next week, but that was my fist pumper. Oh my God. I can't believe I feel like this movie. Um, I just have so much joy inside me. Um, another one is the the writer. I just I haven't been able to mention this movie yet anywhere, but this is a film that is an indie film that's in my top ten, and it's a real life cowboy named Brady Jandro who is being filmed. His actual story. He's a rodeo star. He falls. He gets brain damage, and it's about him trying to make a comeback and whether or not he's gonna make a comeback and what the heck he does with his life when. There's nothing else to do other than ride rodeo. And it's his actual sister who has a development disorder and his actual father that are in this movie with him, his best friend who is in the hospital, um, paralyzed in, in many ways and, and unable to speak because of a rodeo accident himself. And just watching the two of them interact, Patrick, it it's really, oh my gosh, um, heart-wrenching stuff. The way it's shot is absolutely gorgeous. It has a beautiful score. My favorite cinematography of the year. Um, and I just couldn't believe that as someone who's not even an actor, that Brady is able to give a performance that is, you know, right there with the best I've seen all year. Um, the way that this movie, it's a quiet movie, but it's, it's such a great cowboy film and exploration of like, how, what do we do? What does life mean to us? What is our identity going to be? And, and how do we move on when it changes? I think you really like it. Um, so that one's on my, my list as well. It's on my list, too, of movies I need to see and will watch at some point. I know. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Until we get to 2019, they have to start making new lists. Exactly. I've got to... <laughs> You've got a couple months, I think, before the good stuff starts coming. So you get caught up, at least before the Oscars. That's true. That's true. We have made it to the final section segment here. And that is our most anticipated films of 2019. Woohoo! Yeah! 
What are we hyped about? What's going to be on the most highest expectation, exceeded expectations list next year? What's going to be on the um, most disappointed list next year that we're about to talk about here? Um, we don't have to go super in depth on these because we don't know much about them. So let's just start rocket firing them back and forth. What do you got? Well, I got to tell you, I'm, I was making my list and I kept tripping over Disney movies because there are so many of them coming out this year. So freaking many. <laughs> so I recently watched Ralph Breaks the Internet and uh, I sent a, I sent an image to you of pretty much Disney's way of sticking it to everybody with this great visual shot of Disneyland or Disney Town, whatever it was called, in Ralph Breaks the Internet with all four or five of their properties that they own from the Muppets to Marvel to Pixar to Disney to what else, whatever else they have. But gosh, there are just so many out there. Um, so I could throw out the ones that I'm looking forward to that are the obvious choices Avengers Endgame, Captain Marvel. Yeah, whatever. Um, but I'm going to go ahead, I'm going to be kitschy here for this. And I think. The first one on my list is going to be Brightburn, and this is going to be one that I'm going to need your help with, okay? Because this is a horror movie, but it's James Gunn, which I have begun to put my trust in. I'm willing to see Suicide Squad 2 because he is at the helm, even though I don't like Suicide Squad as a property. And also, this is being billed as the horror movie with a Superman horror movie, essentially. So I saw the trailer. I was intrigued. I'm probably not going to see it because there's too much about it that I don't like, but I'm at least going to say Brightburn's on my list of anticipated movies. Great one. I didn't even think about that. I totally forgot about it. And this is, that's going to be the problem is when we go through these, I'm like, Oh yeah, I totally forgot. That's an amazing one. I can't wait to see what happens there. I'm with you. I'm really excited about that one um, as well. I'm going to have, I have one rollover. Normally I've had a couple of rollovers, but this year I have one big rollover and that is from my list last year. Ad Astra. This is a science fiction film from director James Gray, who did The Lost City of Z, which was one of my favorite films a couple of years ago. Uh, it's about, uh, it goes to the outer reaches of space and tells the story of Brad Pitt, who is an, an engineer. Um, he's embarked on this fantastic voyage in pursuit of his father, Tommy Lee Jones, uh, who took a one-way trip to Neptune 20 years prior. So he's trying to go catch up and find him. I'm really excited about the potential of this one um i love my sci-fi so i had to find somewhere to to identify the best new sci-fi films that are coming each year um, there's another one actually that i would tie kind of with this i guess and say my sci-fi looking forward to and that's called captive state i don't know if you're aware of this one but um, it's an upcoming chicago set sci-fi movie that's set 10 years after an alien force has taken over that sounds fun um, it'll explore the lives of both sides of the conflict. It stars John Goodman in another sci-fi alien-based film, which he did very well in last time. Uh, Vera Farmiga, whom I adore. And it's written and directed by Rupert Wyatt, who was the director of Rise of the Planet of the Apes. So I think this has serious potential as well. Fantastic. Well, we always need more Fast and Furious in our lives. At least you and I would agree to that. And so 2019 is getting us ever closer to the next installment of the FF franchise by bringing us Hobbs and Shaw, the exciting spinoff that uh, focuses on Dwayne Johnson's U.S. Diplomatic Secretary Agent Luke Hobbs, forming this unlikely alliance with Jason Statham's Deckard Shaw. That's all the plot that we know. That's all that I need. I know that there's going to be 
lots of fighting. I know there's going to be probably some car chases, and I know there's probably going to be some crazy stunts. I'm there. I'm in the seat already, and I'm ready to experience that. And if there's a way to tie this into the next installment, all the more to get me excited about it. Well, that's on my list, too. Um, it was down there kind of in this group of movies that I was going to mention on honorable mentions. But over the course of the last week or so, as I've been making this list, I if I was really, really going to be honest, like and kind of get rid of some of the indie stuff and the the ones that have piqued my interest, this is in that group of like no brainer i can't wait for this stupid film man i i can't i i'm with you i can't wait like i i want it i want it now i want all of it i don't care i will take every spinoff you can give me from this universe and like you i really do hope that it has some sort of tie-in to get us ready uh to go for the next entry in this series which i'm also super excited about um the next one i want to mention is greyhound you know about greyhound i've I've heard of it. Well, I love war movies. Okay. Um, and this is the new war movie that's going to be coming out. It's actually got a March release date. It's moved around a few times to kind of free itself up for a weekend. It's, it's, um, I don't know. I, I'm really, what, what makes me excited is it's both co-written by Tom Hanks, which is intriguing and also starring him. And he plays a world war two Navy captain of a destroyer that is being hunted by German U-boats um frankly i'm just all over that like tom hanks as a navy captain well last time he did that went pretty well so this is a completely different context obviously <laughs> um he was being overtaken by somali pirates instead of being hunted by german nazis in world war ii but hey um i can't wait for this one i am really really hopeful i, I love it when we get a good war film during the year and even though world war ii is not my preferred era for war films i don't like that as much as more modern day films um it can work. So I'm I'm looking forward to Greyhound. It's on my radar. Good stuff, man. Good war film is always a, a great thing to look forward to. All right. So this hopefully will be three for three in terms of an end of the year movie that I'm looking forward to that exceeds my expectations. It's got two things going for it. The first is that Steven Spielberg is directing it. The second is that it's based off of one of, if not my favorite, musical and it is West Side Story, coming out at the very end of 2019. It's a good time for musicals, apparently. If you know me, you love uh, The Greatest Showman. And I am i have no idea how this is going to be adapted or what it's going to look like. I love Spielberg's vision for his movies, and so I think visually it will look incredible. But... I don't think I've ever seen him do a musical. And so this will be interesting if it's going to be a straight musical adaptation or if it's going to be updated or what. I mean, obviously, West Side Story is an updated version of Romeo and Juliet in musical form with New York gangs. I'm curious if he's going to maintain that same time period with the Jets and the Sharks and this old school thing or if he's going to modernize it. So I'm... I'm cautiously optimistic, but it's West Side Story. It's Steven Spielberg. Don't steer me wrong, sir, please. Well, I will see your musical and go with one of mine, which is Cats, because there has to be a Christmas time musical released every year. And this year it's Cats. I did not know West Side Story was coming out around the same time. 
This one's uh, being directed by, I believe, uh, Tom Hooper. So this is my Christmas time musical Broadway adaptation. Um, I'm super excited about this one. Cats is coming to Seattle a theater version during the year, and I'm hoping to be able to take my daughter to see that and then round it out with the film version uh, at the end of the year. We we are going to see Lion King this coming year uh, or this coming week, actually, this weekend. Uh, we're going to see the the stage adaptation of that, and then of course, 2019 becomes the live action, quote-unquote live action. I don't know what we're supposed to call that now because it's obviously not live action, but the new Disney reimagining of The Lion King. So I love that I have a theater here and a, and a Paramount theater that has Broadway shows, and I it's fun when they correspond to movies that are coming out because I get to see and compare both of those versions. Yeah, exactly. And anytime you have a musical at the end of the year, it's bound to just end the year on a good note. So... Hopefully this will be uh, this will be your way to exclamation point year 2019. Um, other movies that I'm looking forward to are, um, of course, the new Star Wars movie, Episode Nine, finishing out the ori- original canon nine, whatever we're calling though, the anthology or the or the it's not the trilogy obviously, but we'll call it the back trilogy. Um, there's also a movie called Hotel Mumbai, which is based on a a historical event that I don't know a lot about, an attack on Taj Mahal. Stars Dev Patel, who I've always liked in everything that he's in. And uh, so I'm looking forward to that. And Army Hammer. And Army Hammer. It's on my it's on my list. Oh good. Good. There we go. We're we're I like that we're finding more on than off. Or you know, that kind of thing. And then I've got Rocket Man, you know, the next great biopic that Aaron is slowly rolling his eyes at. <laughs> but I've heard you say this is one that you would look forward to, I guess, on the same level that you would Bohemian Rhapsody. So maybe that's not saying much. Anyway, I I said more than Bohemian Rhapsody, which is actually not saying much. Okay. I said okay. I said I like I care more about Elton John than Queen. But okay, like that doesn't mean it's much at all. Um, we shall see. Yeah, we shall see. Um, I'm I'm intrigued again by the performance of the actor that's taking over the role. Um, Taron Egerton looks the part. So I'll be interested to see how he does as Elton John. Can he, you know, do as good of a job as like Rami did as Freddie Mercury? A couple more of mine were The Lighthouse. This is the next film from Robert Eggers, uh, director of The Witch. All we know is that it is a dark fantasy horror about an aging lighthouse keeper. Stars Willem Dafoe and Robert Pattinson, two of my faves. The movie is going to be set in 1890. Um, it was filmed in black and white with equipment from the 1940s and with cameras lenses from the 1920s. It's shot on 35 millimeter black and white film stock, which is pretty much unheard of nowadays uh, because most black and white movies are shot in color and then get converted to black and white in post-production. So both based on the strength of this man's previous picture and the intriguing way in which he's making this film, I'm really curious about The Lighthouse and how that one's going to turn out. Uh, Arctic is another one on my list. This is uh, I love single location survival stories, and this stars Mad Mikkel- Mads Mikkelsen, who goes down in a plane in the Arctic and has to survive. It's got almost no dialogue. It's very minimal, and it's being raved about by those who've already seen it on uh, different um, festival circuits. And let's see, what else have I got? Um, Chaos Walking. 
Did you know that was coming out next year? It's based on a, a book series that you and I read, The Knife of Never Letting Go. So this is a, uh, I was going to make that reference, but yes, um, based on a young adult novel series that Patrick and I have read, um, not sure why I continue to get my hopes up for these, but you know, oh, well, this is Patrick Ness. Um, he made a monster's call and a monster calls rather, and it did okay for us as well. And so this one has Daisy Ridley and Tom Holland carrying it. So there's, it's got potential. And uh, maybe we won't be saying Poutad, Patrick. You never know. <laughs> uh, well, to finish out mine, I've actually got a couple of um, suspense horror movies on my list. Again, this may be the year that I explore a few more horror movies. Um, Brightburn being kind of an entry into that. Also, Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark is coming later next year based on the Alan Schwartz, Alvin Schwartz uh, book series that I actually have had for years and years and years. It's got the really gross art and the really creepy stories that are it's an anthology book and apparently this is loosely based on that book series and also a uh, a movie adaptation of the popular nickelodeon tv show are you afraid of the dark which i grew up really liking so i'm not gonna look the faces that he's making people i'm i was gonna make a comparison (laughs) to goosebumps but i feel like that would be an insult to him so i'm not gonna say that not not necessarily i'm i'm rolling my eyes because when we did our movie draft with my kids this year where I, i list out all of the movies that are coming out and then they take turns picking which ones they want to be my plus one to the screeners for like that was one of the movies that didn't get drafted like i had to like write their names down because they didn't care or didn't have any knowledge or interest in are you afraid of the dark um, and I just found that funny that it would show up on your list. It's really it's nostalgia because I again I love the I love the TV series in the '90s. That's fair. That's totally fair. Um, I guess my last ones are just God. There's just so many, man. How to Train Your Dragon three. Uh, this could be a Toy Story like trilogy for me. Both of the first ones are five star films to me. I really am excited to see how it wraps up. The Disney adaptations of Aladdin, The Lion King, and Dumbo. Godzilla King of Monsters, the next entry in the Universal Monsters, Monsters series that's going on right now. Really excited about that one. Pokemon Detective Pikachu, bring it. Bring it on. Don't shake your head at me. You're going to have somebody else. Don't. You're going to want to cover this. Pick somebody now to cover it because I'm not going to be on that. <laughs> I'm not going to be on that show on that episode. Um, and then there's a couple comic book movies, little comic book movies that I'm excited for. Small. One of which is Avengers Endgame. I mentioned earlier, like the, the burnout I've had. So it's really cool to be reinvigorated, like especially with the Aquaman feelings I've got going on. But based on Infinity War, like I am hype for Endgame. I'm going into this one way different than I went into Infinity War. I'm doing the Road to Endgame rewatch with everybody in the Facebook group. One a week. We're on week four right now, about to be posting that discussion thread over the weekend for Thor. It's been awesome so far. It is totally just, man, I can't wait to see how this storytelling universe wraps up or at least, you know, transitions into the next phase. And then the other one that I discovered is coming out next year is the DC animated version of Batman Hush, which is one of my favorite Batman graphic novels. So they did not do the killing joke justice in my opinion i was a little bit disappointed with that one so i'm hoping that they have learned from their mistakes and that they give batman hush their best dc animated film treatment and it turns out amazing 
All right. Well, that's more than three each, but whatever. It's a lot of movies to look forward to that we're excited about. This has been fun, man. Um, always a blast. Listeners, thank you for hanging in there and listening. We hope you've enjoyed this. We hope you took some breaks <laughs> um, while doing your listening of this episode. We know it's long. Patrick, any last mentions of any films you want to know? Yeah. That's a face that says no. Okay. It's late for me. me I need to get to bed. But All right. Well, thank you, listeners, for listening. Thank you, donors, big time. Everybody who has been a patron throughout the year. Um, so much support that we've received. We, we are just staggered by that constantly. We're very grateful for it. We love um, having that from you and you being participants and picking our monthly episodes and being able to do fun extra bonus content like Patrick mentioned with the trivia and feel and film top 100 and things like that. 2019, man, we got a lot coming. It's going to be exciting. We're starting off with director month in January, going through four James Cameron movies. Um, and then we're hoping to re renew connecting with classics on a monthly basis where myself and Don go through a movie from the AFI top 100. That'll be fun. Um, director battle month again in August is on the plan, I think. So we'll hope to bring you another bracket of 64 films. And again, like we mentioned with the Facebook group, that's where you want to be because that's where nominations and voting for things like director battle month, that's where it goes down. Also the feel and film feelers choice awards, uh, that'll be coming to you in mid to late January and early February. That's another user generated awarding, uh, thing that happens that only goes on in the Facebook group. So another plug to come join that. Last but not least, Patrick, we're starting something new in 2019 as well. What is that thing? That would be the renewal, rebranding, recreation of what we're calling Feelin' Film Plus, which will be weekly episodes that will be talking about what's new in the theaters, quick picks, trailer talk, and really just general pop culture in the news, particularly with movies. Uh, we'll be starting off with some Golden Globes discussion and predictions. So be sure to tune into that. That'll probably be dropping on Friday. So you'll have a Monday and a Friday episode to listen to our beautiful voices. Or if you just want to listen to our beautiful voices on Friday or Monday or any other day of the week, you can go do that because we'll have two episodes for you. So we appreciate what you guys are doing listening to us already. And we're looking forward to talking more and hearing some good stuff from you guys on the second show. Yeah, we're really excited about it. It's going to be about 30 minutes long per episode. So we're going to keep them bite sized, no more than 45. And they're also always going to be completely spoiler free. So whenever we talk about movies, it'll be like in five minute spurts for the most part for those quick picks and new in theater reviews from films that we're not talking about on the main show. So remember, spoiler free. Anybody can listen. Should be a lot of fun. Lots of variable topics, things that are in the news that are going on. We're going to discuss like who we think should be the Oscar host, maybe. Maybe that'll come up at some point. Um, things like that. Probably will. Probably will. Well, Aaron, it has been a long but good episode. And listeners, we hope you've enjoyed it. Like Aaron said, we hope that you have either enjoyed it in one long spurt or short chunks whatever it takes to get your enjoyment factor up to a 10. There's a lot that we talked about. And if you want to continue the discussion with me, you can always check me out on Facebook and Twitter at Shoeless Patch, S-H-O-E-L-E-S-S-P-A-T-C-H. Aaron, what about you? 
You can find me on Twitter at Feelin' Film or in the Facebook group along with Patrick. You can find us there and add us and we'll be happy to engage in discussion with you. Thanks for listening, everybody. We appreciate it. We'll be back in a couple of days with your Aquaman episode. But until then, like I am on Aquaman, stay positive. And keep feeling filmed.